Once again, we've come to Trinity Sunday, so we'll take a look at the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity. And in the time we've got for sermon, it's extremely difficult to do a good summary of this revealed mystery without falling into some sort of heresy. So in order to avoid that problem, we'll go over the same ground as before, in the first place because it's doable, and in the second place because it hasn't changed, and it never will. So anyway, before we get going, we have to remind ourselves the problem that we can have with our imaginations when we're talking about spiritual realities. We have to remember that our imaginations, because we have bodies, our imaginations, their job is to make pictures of material things. So you can picture a horse or an elephant or a pink elephant or a blue horse or whatever. We can picture them in our imagination. Those are changeable material representations of things. Those pictures, those material representations are found in our imagination. Ideas are not in our imagination. Ideas are in intellect. Ideas like justice. What does justice look like? How big is it? What color is it? Love. Truth. These are ideas. These are unchanging spiritual concepts that are found in our intellect. Another example, we think, we can think of trees. We can picture oak trees, palm trees, pine trees, a whole series of different trees. All those pictures are in our imagination. But treeness, the idea behind them, the thing that's common in all the different kind of trees that we can picture, that never changes. That's in our intellect. The images are in our imagination. Or weapons. We can think of tomahawks. You know, black powder rifles, uh, A-bombs, F-16s. We can go down a whole list of different things that are weapons. All those things can go on. Those images that we picture, as I say those words, like AK-47 or something, the image we get, that's in that's our imagination. But weaponness never changes. That's an idea, and that's in our intellect. Weaponness is a spiritual reality that never changes, but the images can, because those are different particular uh, things. Okay, anyway, our imaginations make pictures of material things. We've got bodies. Because many of our aspects of our faith are purely spiritual realities, any image we make of those is going to be wrong. When we make an image of an angel, angels don't look like guys with white cassocks and wings. That's just an image of a spiritual reality. Angels don't look like anything. They're spiritual beings. An angel is where it acts, but it doesn't look like... They can appear like that, but they can appear like all kinds of things. You know, uh, St. John Bosco's angel would appear sometimes as a black lab. You know, angels can appear in all kinds of different ways, but they don't have bodies... So when they appear, it's how they choose to present themselves to us if they appear, okay? Anyway, our imagination can't help making pictures of spiritual realities because our imagination makes pictures, but we have to remind ourselves that it's wrong. Now, when we had geometry, when we were kids, we already learned this, although we might not know it. If you, when you started studying geometric points, then you learned that a point doesn't take up any space. It doesn't have any spread. So you sharpen your pencil. You keep making little and littler dots. No matter how little the dot you are when you're a kid, you figure, boy, there's still some spread to it. After all, you figure out, I can't make a geometric. I can understand it, but I can't make a picture of the dadgum thing because no matter what I make, it's going to spread out. So I can have an idea of a geometric point. That exists in my intellect, but I can't draw one. Because it's just going to—it's going to have some spread to it. That's how it works. So we already know the image in my imagination of a geometric point, even if it's a little black dot and full of white space, perfectly white sheet of paper. 
the image is wrong, but I still understand the idea, okay? So we already learned when we're kids we can understand a concept even when our image is, is wrong. The point is, is we can understand spiritualities with our intellect, but the image and our imaginations can be wrong, so we don't want to allow ourselves to be misled. Our imagination can't depict spiritualities. It isn't meant to depict spiritualities, so we don't want to worry about it. Whatever it depicts, we just relax. It can't help it, but we don't worry. The most blessed trinity is the pure spirit. So any image we make of the most blessed trinity is always going to be wrong, but we don't want to worry about that and calculate off the image that we've created in our imagination. The most blessed trinity doesn't look like a shamrock, with all due respect to St. Patrick, and I'm not making fun of the great St. Patrick. I'm just saying, if we have an idea of the shamrock, we have to remember that is a shamrock. That's not God. And if the image is wrong, okay, so we just don't want to confuse ourselves. Okay, this is the very hardest topic to preach on especially because of the limited amount of time we have. So we're going to rely on St. Augustine's explanation of the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity, and to do that, we're going to lean really heavily on Frank Sheet because he's so great. Okay, we're going to try to pack an explanation of this central mystery of our faith into about 15 minutes. Now, in seminary, we took a whole semester in this, and this was deep, and we're going to try to do this all in 15 minutes, so this is just going to be really flying over the surface. Okay, so we need to review these three terms once again, mystery, nature, and person, and hopefully these are starting to get hammered down. Mystery. When we talk about mysteries of our faith, what do we mean? One thing we don't mean is it's a mystery without a clue, like some murder mystery, you know, I mean, or something. We don't mean mystery in the ordinary way of speaking. Like, oh, well, nobody knows about that. It's pointless to even consider it. God didn't decide to reveal mysteries to us, like the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity, so we could say, oh, well, mystery, let's not think about it. That is not the point of a mystery. A mystery of the faith is something that God explicitly wants us to think about, or he wouldn't have told us about it. He wants us to think about it. But the point of a mystery of the faith is, even when we think about it, even if we could think about it for all eternity, it's something that we're never going to be able to fully comprehend. The point is, he wants us to keep thinking about a mystery like the Holy Trinity, and we'll keep penetrating deeper and deeper into this mystery and get more and more insights. But even if we do this for all eternity, and please God, we will, to heaven. If we do that for all eternity, we'll still never be able to fully grasp it. Why not? Well, it's easy to see. On the one hand, we have this puny little finite intellect. On the other hand, we're trying to comprehend the infinite God. You can't get God inside your mind. If you you think you can, then whatever you're thinking about isn't God. Okay? So we can't get our minds around God. So a mystery of our faith is an inexhaustible truth. It's a truth, but it's inexhaustible. We can think about forever and ever and keep understanding more and more of and never get all the details. So that's mystery. Nature. Talked about this recently. Imagine we're staying in that cabin in the woods and late at night we hear some weird, crazy noise. And we wonder, what is that? Is that a coyote? Is it a mountain lion? Is it a grizzly bear? What is it? We ask the question, what is it? We're asking a question about nature's. Nature is a philosophical term. It's the whatness of something. Fish have fish nature. So they have gills, they swim through, they breathe water, they swim, okay? They act in a certain way. Birds have bird nature. They have feathers, they lay eggs, and so forth. We have human nature. Men 
have a body and a spiritual soul. We can walk and talk and laugh and think. In ordinary language, nature answers the questions, what is it and what can it do? What is it? What can it do? That's what a nature is. When we ask, what is it? What can it do? We're asking, what's its nature? Okay? That's nature. Person. Now imagine we're in that cabin in the woods and we hear a noise like this. We hear someone knocking at the door. We don't go, what is that? Is that a tree? Is that a grizzly bear? I mean, you know, when somebody says something like that, you know, they've had a little too much brandy that night because you're not wondering. When you hear something knocking on the door, you say, who's there? Not what's that? Start running. It'd be weird if you open up the door and there wasn't anything there. It'd give people the creeps, you know, and then you hear the horror music coming out. Why? Because we know that a person would say, who is it? We know it's a human being already, all right? We wonder who's there, not what's there, okay? Who's there? We already know it's someone with a human nature. When we ask a question, who... We're asking a question about persons. Nature determines what something is and what it can do. But person, that's who's knocking. That's who's doing a particular thing. Okay, let's take an example here. Uh, all of us here have human nature, except in a course for the angels and these stupid devils that are hanging out right now. Okay, so we're all different persons. Who am I? I'm Father Wolf, you know. All the abilities of a particular thing are determined by its nature, what it is and what it can do. We're men, so we can talk. Our nature doesn't talk. We talk. A person talks. I'm talking. Hopefully you're not. I'm talking. Okay, a particular person is doing it. The abilities of a particular thing are determined by its nature, but a person performs the actions. Okay? My nature isn't talking. I'm talking. Father Wolf, a person. You're sitting. You're listening. At least we hope so. Your nature isn't listening. You're breathing. Your nature isn't breathing. Okay, you're thinking. Your nature isn't thinking. A particular person is doing speaking, laughing, thinking, breathing. All these things are possible because we have a particular kind of a nature. But our nature doesn't do them, okay? Our nature doesn't do anything. We do something, a person, okay? One other important point. We don't ask, who is that? We see something like a new fruit or vegetable in the produce part of the city. You know, if somebody says, who is that? Why not? Because vegetables aren't persons, neither rocks, minerals, animals, huh? dogs, carrots. These are not clouds. These aren't, these aren't who's. Persons are different than that. Persons are a particular kind of whatness. Persons always have what's called a rational nature. A carrot doesn't have a rational nature. A dog doesn't have a rational nature. A cloud doesn't. Persons have a rational nature. A rational nature means it is a being that can know and it can love. A person can know and love. There are only three kinds of persons, because there are only three kinds of persons that can know and love. There's men, there's angels, and there's God. Those are the three kind of beings that can know and love, the three kind of beings that have rational natures. So nature tells us what is it, what can it do. person tells us who is it, who's actually doing it. Nature tells us what is it, what can it do. person tells us who is it, who's actually doing it. A mystery is some inexhaustible truth that we can never completely understand. We can keep drawing more and more out of as we contemplate it. The most blessed trinity is the central mystery of our faith. Also remember, God's an infinite spirit. So any picture we make of the most blessed trinity is automatically wrong. We can't help making pictures. That's what our imagination does. But don't be misled by the picture. Just remember it's wrong. Now, all that is background. So let's get started. God's knowledge and his love are infinite. His knowledge and his love are infinite. 
And this raises two questions. Since God's knowledge is infinite, what is he thinking about? And since his love is infinite, whom does he love? What does God think about? And whom does he love? First, what does God think about? God has an idea. But he only has one idea. God has an idea, but he only has one idea. He already knows everything. He hasn't forgot anything. But he can't learn anything. He's God. He fits a job description. He has one idea. It can never change. It's an eternal, unchanging idea. Again, it's unchanging. He isn't going to learn anything, and he can't forget anything. And he's infinite. Infinite is just a word that means limitless. There's no limits. Since God is infinite, it means he's the only infinite being there is, or that can be. There cannot be two limitless beings. One would be a limit on the other. You can think about that later. Don't go down that trail right now. Let's stay with this. But that's important to contemplate, okay? Anyway, God is infinite. And he has an infinite intellect. Now, the only thing an infinite mind can find that's even worth thinking about is the infinite being. What does this mean? It means that the idea God has in his infinite mind is the idea he has about himself. And it can't change. His idea is as eternal as he is. He doesn't suddenly think of something. It never changes. This is why it's important to contemplate this stuff. Because it's so different in a sense than us. He's given us the power to think. But we don't have any experience of this. Because our ideas flow all the time. The more powerful an angel is, the less ideas it has. The more simple, the more comprehensive its ideas. The most powerful angels have a very simple idea that can comprehend very, very many things because they're closer to God spiritually in that way than we are. We keep learning. An angel knows it all just like that. Bang, it's poured in. So we can see this when we think a little bit about angels. But when we're thinking about God, it's just incredible. His idea doesn't change. To us, it might seem at first place, well, that means he's kind of simple. It does mean that, but it doesn't mean it in the way we mean when we say somebody's simple. He's simple in the sense that there's no complication to him. He gets it all, all at once. Okay, so anyway, he has an idea that's as eternal as he is, and it doesn't suddenly think of it. And here's another extraordinary aspect of it. The idea that God has of himself is and must be absolutely perfect. Why? Because he knows everything, and that means that whatever in God must also be in his idea. Whatever is in God must be in his idea of himself. Whatever is in God's idea of himself must be absolutely and exactly the same as it is in himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't have a clear idea of himself, which means he'd be ignorant of something, which is impossible, okay? So whatever is in God must be in his idea of himself, and it must be exactly the same in his idea as it is in himself, okay? That's really important. Might want to mull that over later, but whatever's in God must be in his idea of himself, and it must be exactly the same in his idea as it is in himself. Otherwise, God wouldn't know everything about himself, would he? 
And that's impossible. That's so much different than our kind of ideas. It's impossible for us to imagine. But don't worry about our imaginations. It's not impossible to understand. We can't comprehend it, but we can understand that. Now, it gets even more interesting. Any idea we might have is a thing. Our ideas are things. Our idea of weaponness is a thing. Our idea of justice is a thing. Our idea of truth is a thing. That's not true with God. Whatever is in God must be in his idea of himself. And since it must be exactly the same in his idea as it is in himself, that means that since God can know love, then his idea of himself must be able to know and love. Since God can know love, his idea must know love. In other words, his idea is not a thing. Things can't know and love. Persons can know and love. His idea is a person. Now there's more. An idea isn't just off floating off in space somewhere. Ideas don't just drift off. We have an idea. It doesn't just go drifting off and sit up on a shelf or something like that. Okay? A thought is in the mind of the thinker. So this one idea of God has to be in the same identical nature as the thinker. It has to be. Okay? So God's idea of himself is a person, but it's also in the same nature. God conceives within his own infinite nature a perfect, infinite idea, which because it is an idea, is completely within his nature, and because it's a perfect idea of himself, completely contains his nature. His idea, God's idea of himself, is eternal. It's unchanging. He has an internal, unchanging idea. His idea is the eternal, unchanging word. The thinker is the first person of the Most Holy Trinity, the Father. And the idea of the Word is the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, the Son. So what does God think about? He thinks about Himself. All right, so God thinks about Himself, but whom does He love? Well, we have a beautiful idea. We can admire it. We can dwell on it. We can even love it. What a great idea. You know, we can fall in love with our great ideas. How often we do those kind of things. But still, at the end of the day, it's only an idea. It's a thing. We can love it, but our idea can't return that love, can it? No way. But as we've seen, God's idea of himself, this eternal word, is not something, but it's someone. His idea is a person, the second person of the most blessed trinity. Just as God is absolutely and totally and infinitely perfect and worthy of all love, so his idea is absolutely and totally perfect and infinitely worthy of all love. And so the thinker, which is the Father, and the Word, the Son, love each other with a perfect and infinite love. Each person pours himself out totally towards the other, holding nothing back. And this love that the Father have for one another is eternal, unchanging, infinite, has every perfection they do. It's a person. It's someone, the third person in the Most Holy Trinity. And of course, the love the Father and the Son have for one another totally fill their whole nature, producing a third person from all eternity. But again, this person is within the same divine nature. So the second person, the Word, the Son, proceeds from the Father and is generated by way of the intellect. The third person, the Holy Ghost, proceeds from the Father and the Son by way of the will. One divine nature, expressed totally as thinker, expressed totally as word, expressed totally as love. 
Three divine persons, one divine nature. What are you? Question about nature, God. Who are you? Question about person, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Three distinct persons, but not three separate persons. They're three distinct persons, but they're not three separate persons. These three divine persons do not share the divine nature. They don't share the divine nature. Each one possesses it totally. The Father possesses it totally. The Son possesses it totally. The Holy Ghost possesses it totally. Okay? Let's review. Since God is infinite spirit, any picture that we make, and we can't help making them, any picture we make of the most blessed trinity is wrong. We can't help making mental pictures. That's what our imaginations do. But we don't want to be misled by the picture. We just want to remember it's wrong and think about it in spite of the picture, just like we learn to do with geometric points. A mystery is an inexhaustible truth we can never completely understand, but we can keep drawing more and more out of as we contemplate it. Huh? We can see more and more deeper insights. Nature tells us what is it, what can it do. person tells us who is it, who's actually doing it. Now, with respect to the Trinity, God's idea of himself, the eternal word, is a person. And just as God is absolutely and infinitely perfect and worthy of all love, so also his idea is absolutely and infinitely perfect and worthy of all love. And so the Father, the thinker, and his idea of the word, the Son, love one another with a perfect and infinite love. Each person pours himself out totally towards the other, holding nothing back. And this love that the Father and the Holy Ghost, or Son, have for each other is eternal unchanging, infinite person, the Holy Ghost, the third person, the most blessed Trinity. The second person, the Word, the Son, proceeds from the Father and is generated by way of the intellect. And the third person, the Holy Ghost, proceeds from the Father, Son, by way of the will. God's three distinct persons, but he's not three separate persons. These three divine persons do not share the divine nature. Each person possesses it totally. The Father possesses it totally. The Son possesses it totally. The Holy Ghost possesses it totally. Three things you can do today. One, pray for light to come to a deeper understanding. Not a better image, a deeper understanding of this mystery. Second, ponder the words in the Nicene Creed, which we're about to sing. Third, ponder the words in the preface of today's Mass. Let's close with a passage from the Fourth Lateran Council, 1215. Quote, We firmly believe and simply confess that there is only one true God, eternal and immeasurable, almighty, unchangeable, incomprehensible and ineffable, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, but one absolutely simple essence, substance, or nature. The Father is from none, the Son from the Father alone, and the Holy Spirit from both. Equally, eternally, without beginning or end, the Father generating, the Son being born, and the Holy Spirit proceeding, consubstantial and co-equal, co-omnipotent and co-eternal. Close quote. And keep in mind that we're in the state of grace. The most blessed Trinity is dwelling in the depths of our souls with this procession, this eternal procession going on in the depths of our souls, and He's dwelling within us as a friend.